All right, so the main point to today's sermon is that friendship is one of the greatest gifts we receive from God. That friendship is one of the greatest gifts we receive from God. And with this being a sermon on Christian friendship, I thought it would be appropriate to share a lighthearted story about the most innocent of friendships. And it's a story about our youngest son, Asher, who is in preschool. And I've been picking him up on Fridays when I'm off, and I go and I see him play with his friend, and he is saying goodbye. And so I would come and ask him in the car. I'd say, hey, is that a good friend of yours? And he'd say, yeah. Did you have fun with him today? Yes. Hey, what's his name? I don't know. <laughs> but his school's almost over, you know? It's like we got like a month and a half left, and you don't know his name. So I said, let's go find out what his name is. And so we found out his name. His name is Jaden. And ever since, he says bye to his friend Jaden, and they're continuing to build their friendship. I love it. It's, it's just an innocent childhood friend where name is not important. <laughs> I think we all have a different definition or expectation or understanding of what a friend is. And so I asked, I'm going to list up a, a number of titles or types of friends up on, uh, on the screen here. We have, starting with buddy, bud, bro, if you want to be uh, Aaron's really good friend before he takes off, call him Buddy and Bud. I've been doing that as much time, many times as I could. There's Amigo, uh, childhood friend, best friend, fraternity brothers, sorority sisters, friends at work, your gym friends, bandmates. I don't have any bandmates, so if you want to be a bandmate with me, like I will be your bandmate. Uh, there's even mops for mothers and even church friends. We have all these different types of friends. And to paint a picture of this friendship spectrum portrayed perfectly, I'm going to use the example, two couple quotes, from the sociological masterpiece I call Parks and Rec, where within we find this about friendships. This is what Ron Swanson says. The the theologian Ron Swanson. I once worked with a guy for three years and never learned his name. Best friend I ever had. <laughs> Leslie Nob, we need, a fr- we need to remember what's important in life. Friends, waffles, and work. Mm. And within those two quotes lies every friendship in the spectrum. <laughs> but to help paint a better picture than our lighthead examples, I'm going in the utter direction intensity. We know that from the Thessalonian passages that we've been studying, that Paul and his crew, I'm going to be referring to Paul and the authors as Paul and crew here today. Paul and his crew love the Thessalonians. There's this deep love for the Thessalonian church. And as horrible as I feel talking about these movies, I'm going to make a comparison that I think is going to help portray this a little bit clearer. So if you've ever seen the movie series Taken, If you haven't seen it, don't watch it. If you've seen it, try to forget it. But it's about Liam Neeson, who's a father, whose daughter goes on a trip to Europe and she gets abducted. Terrible, terrible story. And I can't help but to see this father's heart just drop when he sees and hears and understands what his child's situation is. Now, maybe... As parents, some of you have children who are in the armed forces, and 
you've sent them off in deployment into war-torn countries, and you might understand this a little bit more than we do. But my heart sinks. I can't imagine what it's like to see someone or send someone or know that someone that you love so dearly is distant from you, and you are so helpless to help or care. Now, this isn't a, a sermon comparing Liam Neeson to Paul here today, but I am trying to explain Paul's deep yearning to be with the Thessalonians, like Liam's desire to be with his daughter. It's this incredible desire to be with the ones he loves, yet being separated and not knowing exactly the state of how they're doing. This is a situation we find the letter to the Thessalonians. This isn't a some lighthearted letter with Paul saying, I miss you guys. I hope you're well. It's not that. Paul isn't saying, buddy, I'm going to miss your birthday party because I'm stuck in traffic. So I'm going to send my secretary, Timothy, to attend on my behalf. It's not that. This is Paul and his crew who desperately want to be with them. And he's writing this letter to explain to them what he wants them to know about the situation. So all jokes aside, I'm here to unpack what I believe is a more robust understanding of Christian friendship from the passage in Thessalonians. So this first section, I like to title it, Christian friendship is truthful about troubles. All the alliteration you hear today is this help of Aaron, the last parting gift, alliteration gifts. I'm going to ask my wife for alliteration help after this. So it's that Christian friendship is truthful about troubles. Let me read the passage for us here. If you have your Bibles, follow along. But as for you, brothers and sisters, After we were forced to leave you for a short time, in person, not in heart, we greatly desired and made every effort to return and see you face to face. So we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. In fact, when we were with you, we told you in advance that we were going to experience affliction, and as you know, it happened. The first thing we see in these first few verses is that Paul and his crew are sharing about the suffering and brokenness of their circumstances. This sermon is not about suffering, so I don't want us to spend, uh, I don't want you to focus all your time and energy in this little passage here about suffering, but it is a big part of what Paul is writing about, the suffering and the circumstance and the brokenness of this life. So we are going to spend a bit of time here, as I hope you can uh, see that there's more to this, but suffering is going to be a big part of today's topic. Paul and his crew use the word being forced, or in other translation, it says torn away or orphaned. Those are pretty strong languages. I think the strong language describes the challenges of life when you follow the Lord, they're not sugarcoating the situation. They're not sugarcoating. Paul doesn't like to sugarcoat things. He, he, he shoots from the hip, and he is, he is calculated with what he's saying, but he is not sugarcoating the circumstances that they find themselves in. He's not sugarcoating anything, but rather he is saying that suffering is headed your way if you follow Jesus. That is the truth that he is sharing. You find Paul peppering this incredible, deep, somewhat scary truth 
of that suffering is coming to those who believe Christ. All throughout his letter in the Thessalonians. You look back to verses 14 and 15 in chapter 2, and you see that Paul and his crew are explaining that the Thessalonians are imitating the suffering that was experienced by Jesus, the prophets, and the authors. So he's kind of already shadowing, like, hey, look who you're imitating. They're suffering that we are imitating also. Fast forward a bit to chapter 3, and you see that Paul and his crew remind them that he has already forewarned of these sufferings and trials to come to the Thessalonians. Once again, he's telling them, hey, it's coming your way. It's like a friend saying something like, hey, friends, remember when we talked about this? Hey, friend, this is it. Hey, friend, do you remember what we talked about? Hey, friends, don't forget. Hey, friend, here it is. This is it. This is a serious reminder for them and for us that a life of following Jesus is a life of joy, as Pastor C preached about a few weeks back, but it's also a life of suffering. Not joy or suffering, but joy is found in, under, over, around, and through suffering. And with suffering, I realize there are elements of suffering that we all go through individually. But as Christians, we share in the bond of suffering as a body. When we follow Jesus, we imitate him, we imitate those that are following Jesus. We imitate them through the hills and valleys also, not just through the good times. And when we follow them through the hills and valleys, we see that there is suffering to be had. We see their love for Christ. We see how they've suffered, and we see that it affects all those around them. We see a picture of this when we read from Paul's other letters also, Philippians 3.10. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Romans 8.17. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. There is a unification of the Christian body our, our unification, our relationship with Christ when we are suffering. I also believe that Paul's writing these truths not to discourage or to scare, but to actually encourage. He writes hard things to not scare us or to discourage us from following the Lord, but he writes these difficult truths to encourage us. We remember in chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, that our suffering is actually a reason we know that we're chosen by God and that we are his children. That's one of the reasons he gives us. In all of the brokenness of life due to sin and the suffering we go through, it's important that we remember that Jesus suffered for you before all of this, before us. He suffered before you and for you. He is the one that we look to and consider the ultimate suffering servant. I want you guys to really remember that. As we suffer, Jesus went before you and for you as the ultimate suffering servant. But you're thinking, okay, well, that just sounds like a lot of suffering. What the heck? You know, why are we suffering? Why are we suffering? We don't just suffer for suffering's sake, but we suffer for God's glory, 
our good and the movement of the gospel. There's a reason. We suffer because we believe that through Jesus' suffering, we have been gifted a right standing with God that we don't deserve and then a friendship that we don't deserve. He's a friend. He's a friend that gave up his life. Died on the cross, rose from the grave, ruling and reigning at the right hand of God who calls us his children and his friend. We suffer to make his name known. This is at the core of Christian friendship. And this is why it's good news. Suffering is not bad news. Suffering is good news. Suffering, through Christ's suffering, we have friendship with him. And it's amazing. Now, Paul and his crew continue speaking on the realities about the troubles of why they can't come in person to visit the Thessalonians. And the reason they give additionally to maybe some of the circumstances going on and the desire to is spiritual warfare in verse 18. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but as Christians, we believe that we live in two worlds. We live in one world, the physical world, the one that we can see, touch, see, smell, right? You're all here, this physical world. But as Christians, we also believe that we live in a spiritual world. And because of this, Paul unpacks for us that one of the reasons why he could not be with the Thessalonians is because of Satan's hindrance. We read in verse 18, Paul's making this case that as much as he desires to be with them, there is spiritual warfare going on, preventing this from happening. Now, we don't exactly know what this is, and I don't want to stand here speculating. I think it'll be fun to take this offline and maybe like around the bonfire, we can speculate all we want, right? Um, maybe invite John, because he'll probably think it's China has something to do with it, too. But um, we're not going to speculate today. Paul talks about spiritual warfare taking place in a number of other areas in Scripture as he writes to different churches. So this is not the only place. This includes examples of the reality of the existence. When Paul talks about, in Ephesians 6.12, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of the darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. He talks about the enemies working when it, they are scheming and taking advantage from 2 Corinthians 2.11. He talks about the spiritual warfare where the enemy is tempting in 1 Thessalonians 3.5. And even if you remember Paul's description of his own thorn in his side, being the work of the enemy in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Now, all, again, Paul isn't saying this about spiritual warfare to scare any of you or us or the Thessalonian church. But rather, I feel like he's exhorting us to remember that this enemy that he's talking about is an already defeated enemy who will finally be dealt with at the end. And we see this in the next passage. We'll see why. This enemy that we deal with in spiritual warfare, until the end, and is finally dealt with, will contend against the movement of the gospel, and will always want to see Christians not take the gospel forward. So I don't think Paul is here to scare us, but I think what Paul is doing 
is he's calling us to be aware and be prepared. I think that's what he's doing. He's calling us to be aware of the spiritual warfare going on and to be prepared to fight the spiritual warfare. He talks about the armor of God as we live our daily lives and other passages. And so don't be scared of Sound City. Spiritual warfare exists. A spiritual, war, uh, spiritual world exists. But he's calling us to be aware and to be prepared. If interested, you can read through Paul's other letters in Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, or really, what I'm telling you to do is just read the whole Bible, and you'll see where the spiritual warfare exists, where the, you know, the enemy's already defeated, we know what's going to happen, we already know the ending. So there's nothing to fear. Now here's the second point from today's sermon, that Christian friendship is fueled by the future. Verses 19 through 20. For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Hmm. Here you see Paul and his crew in verses 19 through 20 take the readers from looking at the present stage to the future of eternity. I told you he's talking about the future here, about the enemy even being defeated. He wants us to fix our gaze not just in the present, but in the future. True friends, true Christian friends, not only help us in the present, but help us fix our gaze towards eternity. Who's here, who here has had a friend, you can raise your hand if you want to, annoying or not, was always a glass half full type of person. Right? You know those type of people. Everything is positive. Never a bad day. Every, every day is a great day, right? Well, I'm here to say that greater than that, but without the annoyance, they're not annoying, Christian friends help you in the present of your circumstances that are, you're going through today, that you've gone through yesterday, but also help you fix your gaze on eternity. I want you to really remember that. Christian friends are not just for here and now. They help you fix your gaze on eternity because they will also be with you in eternity. Paul, but strangely enough, helps us look towards eternity in a very strange way by saying that his hope, glory, and joy is and will be the Thessalonian Christians and that he will boast about them. What the heck does that mean? How are you calling the Thessalonians your hope, joy, and glory, and the crown of boasting? Aren't we supposed to point each other to Christ, not to each other as like the final destination here? Doesn't Paul even say in Galatians 6.14, but as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? He doesn't say I will never boast about anything except the Thessalonian Christians here. So what does he mean? I don't think this is that in any way some sort of contradiction or competition between Jesus and the Thessalonians. It's not a competition. We're not even in the same stratosphere here. That's not what he's saying. But I do believe it's an endearing message to the Thessalonians how much Paul and his crew love them. This is a dense couple of verses. It's like a turducken. Have you guys ever had a turducken? (laughs) This is, 
This passage, I thought, could be its own sermon. And like, I actually just removed a page and a half of notes because I was like, I can't go into this because people are going to think I'm only talking about suffering and this turducken that he's talking about, okay? <laughs> but it's dense. It's like a turducken. It's a turkey that's been stuffed with a chicken that's been stuffed with a duck, okay? It is dense. It is meat on meat on meat. And to, to digest it all, it would take us a long time. But I do want to talk about this. This is not Paul contradicting or saying there's a competition going on. What I do think he is saying in this is that what we can do as Christians is that we can speak of God's glory and his power demonstrated, and we can boast about who God is by directly talking about the work that he is doing in and through the church, right? Does that make sense? He is taking, he's, he's actually indirectly but directly boasting about God by talking about the Thessalonians. That's what he's doing. Now, to paraphrase this passage, I wrote something. This is Myung's translation, Myung's paraphrase. But this is what I believe he's saying. Friends, we love you, and we know that things have been difficult. But continue following the Lord till the end. One day, we're going to shout, God, look at your amazing handiwork. Look at these amazing believers that love you, that thank you for working in and through our ministry to accomplish only what you can do. I believe that's what Paul is saying by boasting and talking about Thessalonians as his crown, his glory, and his joy. And so maybe this is a little little side tangent, but you know, when we receive compliments from one another and say, wow, you know, man, you are so patient. You are persevering through some challenges and difficulties. You are, man, I see... Just amazing godliness in you when you're parenting your kids. Man, I saw Christ in you when you were going through your suffering. When we receive those things, I think oftentimes we don't really know how to receive those compliments. And we're like, ah, it's not me, but Christ in me. You know, it's like we try to deflect those compliments. But I think this passage exactly is what we're talking about. Is like we can actually, when we're talking about each other and saying that we see Christ in them, we're actually not talking about how amazing you are, right? It's, it's not that. We're not saying. But we're saying, what we're saying is, Lord, how amazing you are, Lord, because of what you're doing in and through them. So we can boast. We can receive these compliments from people because what they're doing is seeing Christ. And I think that's amazing. So next time you receive compliments... Unless you have to check your heart and say, Lord, like, help me, because this is, this is building up my pride. If it's not that, receive the compliments and really thank the Lord and saying, Lord, thank you that other people are seeing you through me. And just be, celebrate that. It's amazing. The last point today is that Christian friendship is concerned and caring. And you're like, okay, great, finally. Enough about suffering and about, enough about turducken. <laughs> Friends, this seems more practical. Friends are concerned and caring. From chapter 1, verses 1 through 3a, and then 5 through 8. Let me read for us. Therefore, when we could no longer stand it, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith, so that no one will be shaken by these afflictions. 
For this reason, when I could no longer stand it, I also sent him, who is Timothy, to find out about your faith, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might be for nothing. But now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news about your faith and love. He reported that you always have good memories of us and that you long to see us, and as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we were encouraged about you through your faith. For now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. That's amazing. That is amazing. I don't think I've ever met anyone in my life where they all they said, the only memories we have of you are good memories. So this is, <laughs> this is amazing. Here are some few takeaways from these passages that talk about friendship, being concerned and caring. Godly, Christian, Christ-centered friendships are concerned and caring. The first takeaway is this, that there is a cost to serving a friend. Look what we're talking about, Paul, here. There is a sending and being without a friend in ministry so that Timothy could go help other believers. There is this being without that when there is someone in need that you love and care about, you're willing to send and be without. Now, when I see this, I think this is a pattern that, that Paul continues to write, is that we see this pattern of serving and caring for others that cost us something. More often than not, I would say that true friendship actually gives of yourself and not the other way around. Once again, it's a picture of Jesus giving of himself. So as friends, remember that there is a cost to being a Christ-centered friend. That is a sacrificial friendship. It's not about your gain. It's not about you just amassing friends for the sake of just having friends. When you have Christ-centered friends, in that friendship, you are sacrificing and giving of yourself. Secondly, friendship with the body of Christ happens in community. Chapter 3, verse 2 and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. I love this because we see this sending, visiting, and being together, right? It's an amazing thing. I'm going to reinforce once again that, yes, we are individual parts of the body. But the second portion of that, right? We are still one body. And so we are meant to have tasks individually. God gives us work to do. We have individual suffering and worship and spiritual disciplines. But we cannot neglect that Christian life is meant to be done in community. Right? And once again, for Pastor Aaron here before he leaves, aren't we supposed to do life together? Right? All right. We are meant to be live and to live in community. Another takeaway from these passages here is that within friendship there is genuine care and concern. Verse five. Do you read here that Paul was actually concerned? He was concerned about their faith, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and their labor might be for nothing. What was he? concerned about exactly here? Like, how was he feeling? Paul was concerned that the Thessalonians were possibly wandering. Like, that's that's legitimate, right? That's legitimate. 
And we wonder about that for our family members, our friends, our children, right? How are they doing? Are they following the Lord? Are they worshiping with the body of Christ? What kind of afflictions are they going through? It's a, it's a real, genuine care and concern. But you might be tempted to go down the other way and say, oh, it kind of sounds anxious, right? Oh, anxious and yucky. Like, it's, I don't want to fear that type of fear or care. That, that type of care seems kind of gross. So I'm here to tell you that this care is not anxious or fearful. I don't think it's one of anxiousness or fearfulness, but it's about being thoughtful and aware of how your friends are doing. I think that's what Paul is mentioning here. He's mentioning that as friends, we should be thoughtful and aware of how your friends are doing. This is what Paul's thinking. He's not... Paul has a very big picture. He's, he has a big sovereign picture of who God is, right? So he's not shivering. He's not crying, saying, oh, they're wandering and... I'm so scared what's happening to them. It's not that type of care and concern. It is a type of care and concern that is very thoughtful about how the Thessalonian people are doing, how you are doing, and aware of how they're doing. He wants to know. He wants to know so that he can send people to serve and know how to pray and to care. It's not about gathering gossip. It's not about getting information from all our lives. Oh, how that, how's that person doing? How's that person doing? It's not for gossip's sake, but it's about being thoughtful and aware so we can give of ourselves, we can lift them up in prayer. It's about being thoughtful and aware of how our friends are doing. And the last takeaway from these uh, few verses is that friendship strengthens and encourages Strengthening that takes place for the one who is being served and the one who serves. It's amazing. It's amazing how he talks about they are through understanding the brothers and sisters and all our distress and affliction. We were encouraged about you through your faith, right? Encouragement. Strengthened by what they're going through and what their lives are demonstrating. Their love for Christ is strengthening them. And so we see that Following the Lord not only builds us up in likeness of Christ, but it builds around us up in encouragement and strengthens them in their walk. Our lives fuel one another. It's like one of those, I just, I remember seeing this, I put this as an example. Do you remember seeing those cell phone commercials? It's called PowerShare. You get two cell phones close enough together and one that is low on battery starts to charge from the other one. Great idea. It was maybe not a great idea because it didn't succeed, but great illustration idea. <laughs> you get close enough to the other cell phone and it's charging the other person. And so it's kind of like that as Christians, but not exactly, is when you get and live life and you're in community and you worship together, grow together, suffer together, are joyful together. It's like power sharing. And that source of power is Christ. It's amazing. It's amazing how much you're strengthened by just a, a believer in Christ who is not just optimistic, but they're hopeful for the future. Man, it's amazing. Uh, this is a small side tangent, but just read, uh, actually listened to something um, 
one of uh, a, like a pastor that I follow, um, Pastor Tim Keller, just passed away, if, you're, if you haven't been aware. Uh, he was 72, and he passed away this week. And there was a passage, uh, there was a recording of him talking about the first bout of thyroid cancer that he was battling. And what he thought and was thinking through before he walked into the operating room. And he talked about, man, all this suffering, all this brokenness. I'm paraphrasing here. He said, I know that Christ is near to all those that I care about and love in the church. And that because God is sovereign, everything will be okay. He shared those truths because he gazed to eternity. And he was sharing that type of powerful reflection to his church body. Now he is with the Lord, but those words I think echo even more. That our brothers and sisters in Christ who love the Lord, that help us fix our gaze, not just on the present, but in the future, they help us finish the race. They help us make it. And it's amazing what those types of friendships can do for us. So what are the applications here? Here's the application, the first application. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I encourage you, I would urge you to receive the gift of friendship with God through the finished work of Jesus. Repent of your sins and be reconciled to the Father and receive a position of sonship and a friendship that will be eternally satisfying. For Christians, I would encourage you to live and remember the friendship of God. You have a friendship with God. I think many of us, if we're honest, we're probably, maybe growing up, you, maybe you wanted that one best friend. Maybe you weren't the popular kid and you're always looking for maybe just a number of friends that you would be spending time with, eating lunch with. Well, I'm here to tell you that you have a friendship with God and you have a friendship with all of us here. You can look around and say, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I'm going to call them friends. The third application, I would encourage you to be in community. Join a community group, shameless plug. Seek to meet and know the Christians around you, not just in our church, not just in your community group, but in your workplace, your gym, your mops group, whatever you might, you might join or be part of. And look for ways to serve sacrificially. Don't just, don't just recognize. Look for ways to serve sacrificially. Did you know that in 2019, there was a, a report that came out by Seattle, Seattle Times. I know it's a little old, but I think Seattle is the same. So... <laughs> It said that about 40% of the poll's 1,200 respondents in Washington and Oregon said it's not important for them to make new friends. 40%. I'm just going to say, let's just say half. By us as Christians loving and serving one another as friends, you're already living a countercultural life right outside these doors. For every two people that you meet, one of them is not going to care for being your friend, okay? (laughs) All right, that's the truth. This is what this poll is saying. You have 10 neighbors. Five of those neighbors don't want to see you, right? <laughs> so what you can do is be that light. 
You can show them the friendship that comes from a Christ-centeredness and a Christ-love, and you could also be a light to them so they can understand what that friendship's like. Additionally, I would encourage you, as I encourage myself, to repent of the unbiblical or extra-biblical expectations that we place on our friends and we be grounded in how God describes friendship. I think if we're honest, we go beyond what God calls us or tells us about friendship and make an extra bullet list of this is how I want my friends to be. Maybe no one under 5'8", you know. <laughs> but really, there's, I look back in my, even my own life, and there's a lot of expectations and ungodliness that I put on my friends. And so I would encourage all of us to repent and go back over and over to what God's word says is what is Christ-centered friendship by looking at what Christ has done for us. Let him and his word define what friendship is for you guys. I love this quote by Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote a book on community, and he says this. He says, the person who loves their dream of community will actually destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. That's the type of people I think Christ followers are. The last application point is this. I want you to regularly build in a rhythm of praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ. I know I think all the other application points are important, but one of the things I would encourage is that as a praying church, that you would gather together to pray for each other, that you would individually pray for one another, that you would pray all the time for one another. I think this is the best application I can give you. So really, if anything... Take away. God calls us to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, whether that's individually or together. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you that you call us not only your sons and daughters, but you call us friends. This friendship is undeserved, but one that is just eternally satisfying. Lord, would you allow us to cultivate this heart of friendship with one another? And Lord, that our friendship with you would grow. Help us to love you in the time we spend. And out of that, would it overflow into our friendships that we have with everyone else? For those who are coming here, Lord, uh, may not know you, Lord, I ask that they would be reconciled to you and that they would receive this friendship that you offer as a gift. Thank you for calling us your friend. In your name we pray, amen.